This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in Melbourne's CBD. Today's big question, is there an end for infectious disease? To help us think about this, we have Associate Professor Justin Denham join us. Justin is Medical Director of the Victorian Tuberculosis Program and is also an author of current World Health Organization guidelines on latent tuberculosis infection and ethics. Please welcome Dr. Justin Denham. Thanks, Rob. Nice to be here. Now, you consult globally on infectious disease, specialising in TB. Now, based on your experience of infectious disease, is man flu real? <laughs> oh, man flu is a very important condition, Rob. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. You okay, know. yeah. I- Influenza is a real thing and men are allegedly real, so I'm sure the two must go together. Okay, right. So it- man flu is infectious? Uh, well, it, it's very infectious, which is why it's so important to wrap people up warm and keep them in a warm, soft spot in front of the television for, for many, days. many hours, for many to, hours. To, to protect society that's, that's from That's the treatment them. that you'd recommend? That's what you learn in medical school? Treatment for man flu is television? There's some whiskey involved as well, but, <laughs> okay. but you get the general idea. So why don't women tend to get this? <laughs> well, I, I hate to show off being a doctor and you know knowing where words come from, but the clue is in the word man flu. Okay, you right. See? So it's clearly something just for men. Yeah. Okay. Well, today we're talking with Dr. Justin Denham about the end of infectious disease. So, Justin, in today's quiz, I thought we'd test you on the, the serious infectious disease, man flu. Now, man flu is a crippling and debilitating disorder, indiscriminately striking down male members of the human species without warning. Now, as an infectious disease consultant, you feel qualified? I'll have a go at it. You have a go. Okay, well, there's two questions, both true or false. Question one. According to the website manflu.info, true or false? Man flu is simply a cold, the symptoms of which are greatly exaggerated by men. Well, that that sounds absolutely false. Okay. (laughs) And that is correct, yes. Man flu is a serious and potentially life-threatening illness and will no doubt be seen on the health and safety executives list of reportable diseases. Man flu is a distinct disease in its own right and should not be misdiagnosed as a mere common cold. You agree with that? Well, I'm, I'm glad to see that, um, you know, a reputable medical evidence is reflected on this website that you found. <laughs> right, yeah, manflu.info, which is the, uh, one of the world's leading authorities. It's, it's possibly the world's only leading authority. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever had man flu? Do you know, I, I, I was once evicted from my hospital because I had the actual flu. Uh, so, oh, right. And as a man, I think I can say yes. So that's, yeah. that's slightly yeah. different to man flu, though, the yeah, actual flu. Yeah. Okay. Second question. Again, according to the website, manflu.info, the global authority on man flu, true or false? The pain and suffering of man flu is similar to that of childbirth. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know... I, I think I can guess what the website might say, <laughs> but my wife will probably listen to this at some stage, and right. so I'm, I'm going to have to say no, it's not comparable to childbirth. Well, that's wrong, oh. because it's true, <laughs> though at least with childbirth it's all done and dusted in a few hours, um, <laughs> but man flu can last for weeks, so yes, so you should share that with your wife. I'll, yeah. I'll mention that, I'm sure. <laughs> so have you ever seen men present with man flu in the hospital? Actually, yes, we do. We certainly will see people who come into the emergency department at three o'clock in the morning and are just desperate to be seen right that moment because they've had the sniffles for you know even two <laughs> even two days sometimes. And so, how do you respond? 
Well, you know, it depends how generous you're feeling at the time. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, the challenge is uh, when you're working in a hospital and you come around in the morning and you find people who've been admitted to hospital overnight and you find someone with man flu who's been admitted to hospital right. and have to say, yes, you really need to go home now. Right, so. okay. Anyway, in our man flu quiz today, Justin, congratulations, you passed. You got one out of two correct. Ooh, round of applause. Thank goodness. Oh, Justin. They would, they would even, have... though, even though I do sense that you did throw that second question, I think you uh... <laughs> Anyway, so Justin, what's the difference then between man flu and TB? Yeah, okay. I, I, look, I, I feel on much more solid ground on, on TB. Right. Um, it's actually a bit more serious. It's a little bit more serious. Well, a lot so more serious, perhaps. N- nearly, nearly 10 million people got TB last year, and one and a half million of them died. Um, mm. it, it's the single most, uh, I'm just going to say the single most important infectious disease, if we think about it in terms of the, the burden that it places on not just individual people and their families, but societies around the world. Yeah. So it, it has an enormous impact. So tell us a bit more about infectious disease. So you consult in a variety of them, specialising in TB, but which is the most contagious? I have a little, um, a little example that I, I give the medical students to, to show them a little bit about this. Um, so tuberculosis, people think of as an infectious disease, and of course it can be passed from person to person. Usually when I give this illustration, I'm in the middle of a, a big lecture theatre with three or four hundred people, and I explain that if someone with TB uh, walked through the audience coughing on everybody as they went, uh, and then walked out, possibly one, but probably none of those people would get TB. On the other hand, if you take a disease uh, like smallpox or measles, which were once common diseases but are not uh, any longer, if somebody with one of those diseases walked through the auditorium an hour before any of those people sat down, statistically 100% of those people who were not vaccinated would go on to get infections. So they're incredibly contagious. And you don't have the statistics on man flu? On man flu, yeah. On contagion? I think there's a big study needed on that Right, right, yeah. So then you direct the Victorian TB program. What do you do? Yeah, so it's a mixture of things. Um, When people in Victoria get sick with tuberculosis, uh, we help them to get better. Mm -hmm. We give them uh, fairly lengthy antibiotic courses, and we have a a team of excellent nurses who visit them at home. Uh, Part of what they do also is look for anyone else in the community who might be at risk of of catching TB, uh, often household family members and so forth, uh, because we've got some ways that we can prevent them going on to get sick as well. Uh, so a mix of that sort of clinical and public health uh, activities. Is it common, though, in Australia to get TB? Um, by world standards, no, it's not very common at all. We have something like 350 or 400 cases a year here in Victoria. So it's something that I see every day, but um, even most doctors in Victoria won't see a case uh, frequently. You've mentioned some of the things that have been done or the things that you do to combat infectious disease. What's being done? Look, infectious disease is is a very broad camp, Um, uh, so, you know, it's hard to to canvas everything. But I guess it runs the whole gamut. Um, Like most conditions, we'd like to prevent things rather than treat them, if at all possible. Uh, And so a big part of the work generally is in uh, developing and then uh, expanding access to things like vaccines, particularly. Mm -hmm. When we talk about a disease like TB, there's also uh, a lot of um, holistic health care that goes into that. So we know that um, many of the most important things around controlling uh, tuberculosis tuberculosis globally have, have not been providing a specific TB treatment, but it's about providing people with access to um, well-ventilated housing and better
better living conditions, um, sanitation and clean water for a, a range of other infectious diseases. Uh, those sorts of improvements in people's levels of poverty and general standards of health are actually critically important ways to combat global infectious disease. Mm. And then, of course, the very pointy bit of all of this is some of the work that we see around um, very expensive and high-profile development of things like the Ebola vaccine, which are a massive focus for a short period of time, but hopefully in the long run provide benefit for, for millions of people. Mm. You haven't had much to do with the Ebola virus? Well, you don't want to catch it, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. but, I've, but I've, you haven't had much to do with it? Look, actually, um, my hospital is the designated um, centre for uh, Ebola and hemorrhagic fevers, which is the, the general term for these kinds of vaccines. So it's meant that we've had a lot of work to do in terms of um, making sure that we've got um, constantly available negative pressure rooms where you could put somebody in who got off an airplane, um, screening people who come back from areas where there are infectious diseases who have a fever or are unwell and might have it. Um, so there's been a lot of activity, but we haven't actually had anyone in Australia with, with the, Ebola the Ebola virus. virus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a bit more about vaccines. Where do they come from? I mean, I'm assuming there's no vaccine tree that they grow on. So where do vaccines come from? Actually, you know, there's some fascinating work that's been going on in the last decade about trying to grow plants. There's a strain of lettuce that they've been working on, which has the uh, hepatitis A vaccine built into it. All right. So there are some really interesting ways that people are trying to develop and, and produce vaccines. In your garden. Uh, most of them, though, uh, they come from a pretty similar process, um, with apologies to people who are uh, deeply involved in the process. But the general idea is that cells, uh, often yeast, sometimes other kinds of cells, are infected with a strain of usually the virus, that they're trying to create a vaccine for. And then the antibodies or some of the protective proteins that are made are purified and, and used as a vaccine. There's lots of different ways that vaccines are made, but that's one general mm, way mm. that it happens. So then why do we vaccinate? Is it they're, they're effective? Uh, yeah, so all vaccines are a bit different. Uh, we've got some like the um, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine that are extremely effective, uh, close to 100% effective. But then we've got some other vaccines like the one for tuberculosis, unfortunately, which is not very good. So it's maybe 50% effective, which is why it's no longer used routinely in Australia. Although in some places where there's a lot of TB infection around, even 50% is something worth, worth, worth doing. It's better than nothing. Yeah, so all, all vaccines, uh, we assess them on their merits and we think about what's going to be useful and helpful in a particular context. So what do you then make of the anti-vaccination movement? You know, some people have mm -hmm. reactions to vaccines and they claim that it's a myth that vaccines are necessary, safe and effective. What do you make of it? Look, um, I guess there's a couple of things that I'd say about that. The first is that I think when people come to making decisions about vaccines for themselves, uh, or we often see this about people making those decisions on behalf of their children, um, People, by and large, want to do what they think is right, um, particularly if they're thinking about decisions for their family members. Um, people don't make these kinds of decisions to be cruel or nasty. They do it because they make some assessment of what they think is the right thing to do. When I have conversations with people who are thinking about not using vaccines for one reason or another, I really try to tease out a lot about exactly why it is that they think that, because people have a lot of different reasons for not wanting to give a vaccine. Um, sometimes it's because of something that they've heard or a belief that can be explained is, is not right. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but often it's a lot more complex than that, uh, and it needs a lot of consideration. Uh, so I, I like to not put people into a 
for vaccines or anti-vaccines box whenever it's possible. Mm -hmm. um, just like I've said to you, I think that every vaccine decision is a question of what's right in an individual context. And that's something that I try to work through with people who are unsure about vaccines as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. So what about the link that is often associated in the media or claimed by some people that there's a link between vaccines and chronic illness? For mm -hmm. example, Pauline Hansen said that vaccines may be linked to autism. Yeah, yeah. Look, that, How do you that's, respond to that? Look, that, that's been a terribly damaging uh, episode um, globally. And uh, look, th this is something that's been debunked time and time again. Uh, I guess what I would say very simply is that there was uh, one actually criminally fabricated study that suggested that, uh, that was very high profile and has resulted in the doctor and researcher who led that research being uh, struck off from the medical register. Mm -hmm. um, the study's been retracted and in fact the last decade have seen some of the largest studies ever conducted for anything in the world showing very comprehensively that there's no link between in this case is the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine and autism. So I think as far as um, there being evidence to say there is no link there, th there's no link there. Right, okay. Yeah. So why did you choose infectious diseases? Oh, look, I guess there's lots of reasons for that. Um, infectious diseases is a very broad field and it's one that uh, affects people all around the world. Um, when I started in medicine, I thought for a while that I wanted to work in cardiology. And without any disrespect to the, the great cardiologists out there, um, one of the things that I realized while I was spending time there was that everything I was doing needed to work with uh, expensive facilities and multi-million dollar machines. And when I thought about the massive amount of impact that infectious diseases have around the world, uh, and actually the generally pretty cheap and accessible treatments that are available, um, I thought that this was an area that I wanted to work with, something that was engaged with global poverty, an important issue here in Australia, but also something that um, potentially would let me work in developing settings that, that needed that even more. Now, as part of bigger questions, we also reflect on the Bible, because surprisingly to many, it offers answers to the big questions of life. Now, but before we do that, Justin, we're interested to hear why you believe the scriptures are worth following. So, Justin, what convinced you to become a Christian believer? Well, I, I grew up uh, in a family that went to church, uh, and so my experience was uh, of always knowing something about the Bible and about mm -hmm. God. But I think like a lot of people, uh, when I got to university, there was a time of questioning those things. Not so much, uh, I don't remember ever having a time of thinking that what I read in the Bible about God was not true, yeah. but I certainly remember a lot of time thinking about whether it was worth following. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that my experience and, and probably lots of other people's is that just because something is true doesn't mean it's worth devoting your life to. Yeah. And uh, for me, I think that university time was a particular period of asking that question of what is worth following, what's mm -hmm. worth devoting your life to. And so what made you make that decision? Again, I, I think there were lots of things that went into that, but um, there's a few moments that really stand out. Uh, for me, w one of the moments that, that sticks in my mind is um, I'd been doing a lot of work in uh, medical ethics. And somebody who was a, a much more senior doctor and ethicist, uh, someone who I respected a great deal and, uh, and still do, I was at a meeting with him where he was speaking publicly and he works in an area where um, people are very unwell and uh, it's very common for people to, to die despite their best efforts. And he said some words that have always stuck with me. He, he said that a huge proportion of his patients um, their children particularly died. 
And he said that parents would very often come to him at some point in this process and say, we hear from doctors that this is the way to go and from nurses that this is the way to go and we hear from our naturopath or we hear on the internet that this is something we should try or a different way we go. What do we do? Who do we trust? Um, Who do we put our hope in? And this doctor said, I have no answer for them. I can give them the best advice I, I can, but I'm acutely aware that I can't answer them when they say, where do I put my hope? Where do I find hope in this situation? And that for me was a very powerful moment because I was listening to that and I thought, well, I I know the answer to that question. Even in the midst of very difficult circumstances like he's describing, I actually do know where I can go to put my hope, a hope that is not affected by whatever medical technology is available on the day or um, however difficult the situation might be. I know that uh, I can have a hope in a God who doesn't change and is always faithful. Um, and is the author of all of these things. And so that, for me, was a very powerful moment, uh, not just as a a person thinking about following Jesus, but also thinking about uh, how I wanted to be uh, a doctor who followed Jesus, Mm. too. So you felt that Jesus offered this hope that the doctor was longing for in many ways. That's right. I think he articulated very clearly both the, um, the things that are possible in modern medicine and the things that are not. He was someone who was at the cutting edge of what medical ethics and, uh, and medicine in his field had to offer, uh, but he was also someone who is wise enough to have realized that there is a limit to both of those things, uh, and that he, as someone who didn't share Christian faith, actually couldn't bridge that gap. He, he didn't have a hope that he could bring to people. And so even though you knew that Jesus was true, mm-hmm. but now you felt there was a reason to follow yeah, I think that's right. I think that's that's one of many things that helped me get from simply knowing that something is true to making a decision that it was worth um, devoting my life to. So is Jesus, or this part of the story of Jesus, is what motivates you in infectious disease as well? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And I'm, I'm cautious in saying that because... There are lots of people who are my passionate colleagues and do a fantastic job and don't share my Christian faith. Um, For me, when I thought about uh, what it was that I wanted to do, uh, I think that some of the characteristics and priorities that I felt God had for people in this world, particularly caring for the poor and caring for for my neighbor in a global sense, uh, those were really powerful things for me in um, making a decision to go into infectious disease. And I hope they're also part of what guides me in the way that I do that too. So would you be doing this work if you weren't a Christian or would you stay doing cardiology? Yeah, look, for, for me, uh, I think I probably wouldn't. Uh, I, and again, you know, there's plenty of people who do, yeah, um, right. who do make that decision. But for me, I think that was something quite fundamental, that this is an area that I work in specifically because I felt called to follow Jesus in it in some small way. Now, a question came in which relates to that is, if, as you say, the Christian faith gives you the only real hope, why bother doing the work you do? (laughs) I think the work that I do is not just about providing hope. So I don't think that there is a a conflict between the work that I do and the hope that I have in in Christ. Um, Quite the opposite, actually, because I think that, for me, there is an opportunity... Um, not just in my work, this is, this is true for everyone's work, but I'll talk about it in my context because it's what I do. I think there's an opportunity for me to, um, to live out something of the hope that Jesus brings. I think there is an opportunity to, um, 
to try to point people towards a healing that um, I can help bring about in some little way because God's popped me in this place and he's given me certain tools. Um, there's a certain amount of um, physical healing that I can be a part of and I'm privileged to do that. But I think there's also a bigger healing. There's a broader healing, uh, a more um, holistic way of being uh, whole and well and healthy. And that's something that uh, actually we'll never see in this world. Uh, mm. It's something that... Uh, following Jesus, though, gives me a vision of what's possible for people to be truly whole in a physical and relational and spiritual sense, something that goes beyond just taking some tablets and being free of a disease. Mm. Well, maybe we'll look at part of that vision now. The part of the Bible we're reflecting on today comes from the Gospel of Mark, which is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have. In chapter 5, Mark recounts an encounter between a sick woman and Jesus. This woman had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now, Justin, can you sympathise with this woman's situation? You meet people like her? Look, I do. Um, but, you know, when you ask me if I can sympathise, that there's another, uh, there's someone else I sympathise with in that situation. And that's, she's suffered under the care of many doctors. And instead of getting better, she grew worse. Yes. You know, and I... I feel both of those things. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I feel empathy with a group of people who I'm going to assume were doing the best they can. Yeah. And she was not getting better. Yeah. And I feel empathy for this woman who um, has had a, a chronic illness, uh, one that I presume affected her physically, um, but also in the culture of the time, the fact that she was bleeding. This mm. is in this translation. This is um, this is something of a euphemism, but this is menstrual bleeding that yeah. she's having, which in her culture at the time would have meant that she was ostracized, that she would not be able to participate fully in many of the social and, and cultural uh, activities of the time. Yeah. So this is not just a physical illness that she's suffering from, it's also about um, social and religious isolation. Mm. You know? And this woman hears about Jesus, a man with reputation for healing disease. She came up behind him and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Uh, then in verse 29, after she touches Jesus, she felt her bleeding stop and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So what do you think Jesus brings to this woman? This woman is so brave, isn't she? Mm -hmm. um, you know, she, she's in the, the midst of this long-term social isolation and she's compelled by something. She's compelled by something she's heard about who Jesus is to come out in public and to reach out and, and touch him, physical, um, physical contact with him. You know, I, I think she's so brave to do that. And her, her bravery is immediately rewarded. Uh, I think what happens here is that her faith has healed her. I mean, this is something that we'll go on to look at in the passage, but Jesus is one with uh, authority over um, all aspects of human life, um, over both the, um, the social and relational, but also the physical. Mm -hmm. And so when she touches him and she's healed, she's healed in uh, so many more ways than just the physical. And I think that is a wonderful expression of um, the, the power that Jesus has over all aspects uh, of, of creation. So do you wish you had Jesus' power when you're visiting communities affected by TB, that you could touch them and they'll be healed instantly? Look, of course I would love that. You know, I think it's impossible to look at someone who's um, suffering and in pain and not want to be able to relieve that um, immediately and instantly and, and thoroughly. Um, I think there's also a sense in which uh, 
part of our challenge and part of my challenge is realizing that we're told consistently in the Bible that we do have Jesus's power and that in some small and imperfect way, actually we are there to bring something of the power that Jesus has over all aspects of life. Now, that has never in my career resulted in me touching somebody and having a miraculous healing that they Mm. walk out of there. Um, But I hope that I've been able to participate in lots of ways um, in people who come unwell um, in, in different aspects of their life and leave a little bit more whole. Now, the Bible goes on to complete the story of the future, as you've alluded to. The final book of the Bible, Revelation, paints a vision of the future. It describes a new heaven and a new earth where God dwells with people. And Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now, this vision for the future contains the end of infectious disease. This means that you'll be out of a job. <laughs> yes. Yep. I, I will be delighted if um, for all eternity I get to be a gardener. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So is this the vision your, your infectious disease unit is working to make a reality? Well, it is. It, it is, absolutely. Um, the reality is that this picture that God paints for us that you've just read, this is what we have to look forward to. Um, this is the vision of a new heaven and a new earth that is um, without pain and suffering, without disease. And what we are trying to do in some small way, specifically related to this little aspect of tuberculosis, is we have a vision of what a world can look like, and we are trying to bring that little bit about. That doesn't mean that we're going to collectively usher in this kingdom. It yeah. doesn't mean that we keep working until we eliminate all the infectious diseases and then suddenly the kingdom there comes. we are, the kingdom comes. But it does mean, I think, uh, in a very powerful way for me personally, it does mean that when I try to help somebody not to get tuberculosis, what I'm doing is I'm trying to align my medical practice with something that I know is close to the heart of God. Mm. Um, It means trying to say, what is there about my day today that can be working directly for something that God tells me he wants for everybody? But isn't modern medicine already achieving this? Why do you need a vision of God? Uh, well, partly to avoid us thinking that modern medicine can achieve this, I think. Uh, I think if infectious diseases does nothing else, it um, encourages you to be very humble because around the corner there's always the next Zika or Ebola. Um, every couple of months I come across a whole new infectious disease that no one had ever heard of before, and I don't expect that to stop anytime soon. Uh, I think the idea that we will defeat disease through um, some kind of uh, scientific advance or, or uh, medical engagement. I think, um, well, I, I think it's ridiculous, even if it wasn't just uh, full of pride and, mm. um, and that kind of thing. I, I, just think it's, I just think it's not possible. Mm. Um, and that doesn't mean that we can't do a lot of good things in the meantime, but I think it does mean that we need to be quite realistic uh, about um, this possibility that we can make everything perfect through our own strength. Mm. So, Justin, is there an end to infectious disease? Well, we just read about it. Um, I think this is, I think the vision that we have in Revelation 21 is the end of infectious disease that we look forward to. Um, will we have fantastic technological advances? Will we um, eradicate some other diseases from humanity? I hope so. You know, I hope in my working life that we will eliminate tuberculosis. It's the thing that we're working towards, and maybe that's accomplishable. But for the end of infectious diseases, uh, I think we need to wait for a new heaven and a new earth. 
Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, is there an end for infectious disease? From Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I look forward to you joining us next time. For bigger questions, please thank our guest today, Dr. Justin Denham.